Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Two of the largest school districts in the state are welcoming students back to campus today. San Diego and San Francisco Unified are both opening for in-person learning. In San Francisco, only the district's youngest students will be back in the classroom, while in San Diego, all students will be given the opportunity to return to campuses. Brandon Harrison is a youth pastor with children enrolled at schools in the San Diego Unified. He said it was a tough decision, but he's decided to keep his kids at home for the time being, despite all the help from the school district. They've done awesome with our first grader, done these probably the last three weeks, like practice days of wearing your mask and all right, let's go wash your hands. And all right, let's make sure that we're not touching our eyes. And they've really coached the kids throughout this time and even our, our fifth grader as well. But we've we just know our kids and we're like, we're going to wait throughout the summer. The latest parent survey in San Diego found that about half of the students in the district will continue with online learning. And there's been much good news related to the fight against COVID-19 in recent weeks, as more Californians get vaccinated and infection and death rates fall. But the pandemic continues to take a heartbreaking toll on the state. Over the weekend, COVID-19 deaths surpassed 60,000 people in California, according to some counts. That represents about 10.5% of all U.S. COVID deaths. Looking ahead, there's both good and bad news on the vaccination front. This Thursday, California will make all adults as well as 16 and 17-year-olds eligible for vaccinations. But the supply of Johnson & Johnson doses will be limited for the next two weeks, which could impact how many people get their first shot. The sprawling Los Angeles County Fairgrounds in Pomona will be used as an emergency shelter for some 2,500 unaccompanied migrant children, most of them from Central America. The 500-plus acre fairplex is the second facility in L.A. County selected to house minors crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. With more, here's KCRW's Benjamin Gottlieb. The federal government says nearly 19,000 unaccompanied children and teenagers have been found crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. The Biden administration is struggling to house them while their asylum cases are processed. Now, L.A. County has the latest local government called on to help. It's not a detention facility. It's L.A. County Supervisor Hilda Solis. It's not cages. It's not a jail. Certainly not a detention camp. Nothing could be further from the truth. Solis says the young people that will be held in Pomona will mostly be between the ages of 12 and 17, and she expects they won't stay at the Fairplex for more than a month. But county officials have been unable to provide a timeline for how long this makeshift shelter will be in operation, and how quickly minors can be connected with family members or foster homes. 
Pomona Mayor Tim Sandoval says he was skeptical at first, but is now firmly behind the plan. I wanted to know that the Pomona Fairplex site was intended to be used as a part of a plan to reunify the children with their families. I was assured of this. Although this is temporary, using facilities such as the Fairplex and convention centers is part of the Biden administration's attempt to speed up the transfer of kids from overcrowded border facilities. For the California Reports, I'm Benjamin Gottlieb in Los Angeles. The Fairplex is the third site in Southern California that will be used to house unaccompanied minors. The San Diego Convention Center began accepting kids in March. The city of Long Beach will do the same at its convention center as soon as in the next couple of days. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. As San Francisco Unified's youngest students return to the classroom today, there's been a cloud hanging over the school board, especially one commissioner. Here to talk about it is KQED reporter Holly McDeed. Holly, the controversy involves one commissioner named Allison Collins. What's been happening with her? So there's been a chorus of people calling for Allison Collins to step down since tweets she made in 2016 resurfaced last month. In those tweets, she says that Asian American teachers, students, parents use white supremacist thinking to get ahead and promote the model minority myth. So in response to calls for her to step down, she actually filed a lawsuit of $90 million against her own school district, as well as her colleagues who stripped her of her vice president title on the board in response to the tweets. And this isn't the only controversy that confronts the San Francisco Unified and its board, right? That is correct. There's been a lot of criticism of the school board. One reason is their effort to rename 44 schools in the district, they say, are tied to racism and sexism and other types of oppression. That got a lot of criticism because it was uh, an effort during the pandemic and also because of sloppy research and reliance on Wikipedia when it came to deciding which schools to rename. The board also faced a lot of backlash for ending the admissions policy at the city's elite Lowell High School, um, which had historically relied on grades for students to get in. So a lot of alumni and parents were were angry about that move. And finally, Holly, where do the students stand in all of these controversies? I understand some of them spoke up at a recent school board meeting. 
Yeah, a few students speak up at these board meetings. It's usually the the same students, usually not more than five at an average board meeting. And so a lot of the students, they say really they're afraid to weigh in at these board meetings because the adults who attend do tend to yell. Um, One student delegate on the school board Siobhan Hunts Foster, she she's actually been shouted down by parents at these board meetings. And at a recent board meeting, um, she presented a project that she worked on with her her two friends that was essentially trying to bring some different perspectives to the conversation around Allison Collins' tweets. It was an attempt to show the adults that there can be a way to talk about very contentious issues in a way that does not involve yelling at each other and can be civil and can be a debate about different issues. But yeah, I think overall students are are tired of being used as fodder for adults trying to push different issues they care about and they want the adults to to focus on trying to improve their education and make schools more equitable. Okay, that is KQED reporter Holly McDee joining us to talk about education and the San Francisco Unified. Holly, thanks so much. Thanks, all. The Biden administration wants to spend tens of billions of dollars developing electric vehicles and a national network of EV charging stations. So can California, with its long experience promoting electric cars, teach the country about how to move forward and what mistakes to avoid? Well, yes, says electric vehicle industry analyst Chelsea Sexton. Sexton is an ardent EV booster, but she also doesn't shy away from talking about problems in California's efforts to promote electric vehicles. I recently met up with Sexton to talk about these issues, starting with the growing range of EVs now on the market. Diversity has always been our number one challenge with electrification. It's always been sort of little tiny compact cars or really expensive stuff and not a lot in the middle. We're starting to fill in that middle. There's starting to be more crossovers available, more pickup trucks. So more of that diversity is coming, which is important. No single car works for everyone, gas or electric. And so the more we can get the different flavors for everybody involved, the better off this overall market will be. We've had our very own ambitious statewide goals when it comes to EVs. I think formally speaking, we still want to reach 5 million electric vehicles in California by the year 2030, which isn't far from now. It's only nine years down the road. There's only a fraction of cars I see on the road that are still EV, even here in California. I I know nationally it's 2%, maybe a little higher here in, in this state. So what are we doing wrong after so many years of rhetoric and goal setting about these kind of vehicles? Practically speaking, the number one challenge has been lack of product, whether that's affordable or other sorts of variety that we've we talked about before. The second biggest problem is awareness. A shocking number of people, even in California, do not realize that their electric cars are available or how they work or what they are, or they have such negative perceptions about them, they're golf carts and they can't perform the way a real car would, that they're unwilling to consider them. And many, I mean, two thirds of Californians are unaware that there are incentives available to help you buy them. So all things awareness, whether it's straight up vehicle marketing or or larger sort of issue types of things are really important. The third is dealers. We can throw all the money at the world on developing cool EVs and marketing the heck out of them, but if you walk into a dealer and some guy at Ford says, no, 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 you'd really rather have the gasoline version, 
we're not solving the problem, we've just wasted billions. And infrastructure remains an ongoing perception issue in that most non-EV drivers don't realize how many stations there are. They're sort of constantly looking at Eating charging stations. Charging stations, yeah. We need more chargers, we need more chargers. And one of the lessons we learned from the 90s on is we actually need more signs. More signs? More, signs, more like wayfinding signage. That is an, an underestimated stumbling block in that people are often driving past chargers all the time, not realizing that's what they are, because we're used to driving past gas stations that even if the brands are different, the stations all kind of look similar. That's not the case with chargers, and we don't have universal signage or anything that says a charging station is right here. <laughs> you know, keep that in mind as you drive past it every day when you're thinking about your next car to buy. And it's such a super cheap and simple thing compared to lots more charging, but it's part of the problem. We forget the brilliant basics. So when it comes to the future of our charging infrastructure here in the country and here in California, again, Biden administration, big goals there. It squarely sees charging stations as part of America's infrastructure now, like roads and highways and bridges. It wants to see hundreds of thousands of them installed. What's the one piece of advice you would give the Biden administration in relationship to the California experience about how to do that smartly? Fast charging has become vastly overhyped relative to when it is actually useful and what it costs. It's being pitched right now as the answer to all apartment dwellers and things like that, sort of the gas station model of let's just put a bunch of really fast chargers in the middle of a city and people can rely on that, which has its place. It is also the most expensive charging in our ecosystem to use. So telling apartment dwellers and often those with the least economic means that they should rely on the most expensive charging is not something that's ever going to fly, but no one's having real conversations about how to address that. It's really inside baseball, but there's aspects of public charging fees that are three times as expensive as they are in Europe. Not for any good reason other than that's what providers here are used to getting away with charging. And in order to make all of this infrastructure deployed accessible, affordable, reliable, we have to address those issues. We can't just throw that much more money at this and hope it all goes well. We've been doing that for 25 years. Chelsea Sexton, EV advocate slash explainer of the pros and cons of EVs. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for letting me crash your party. And that is the California Report for Monday, April 12th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Support for the California Report comes from the law firm Perkins Cooey, a trusted legal advisor to innovative companies and industry leaders throughout California and the world. Learn more at PerkinsCOIE.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from Throughline. 
If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.